Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 39. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 39. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Today's conversation is a conversation Greg and I had a while ago. So right around the time of chapter 11 and not a fan by Kyle Eidemann. That's episodes 26 and 27 of our podcast here. In that chapter, Eidelman was highly leveraging Luke 9.23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So this conversation digs a little deeper into exactly what that passage means, what was going on at the time, and then just kind of wanders off from there. So here it is. Today I thought it would be interesting to talk about the Bible. Well, we were talking about Luke 9.23, which talks about denying yourself and picking up your cross daily. Uh, That was um, an admonition from Jesus in Luke. It's also in three of the four Gospels. We're seeing this passage, actually it's it's almost just one sentence or a few words used over and over again in, in a book called Not a Fan. I've also seen it in, or heard it in pretty much my whole life, I guess, in Christendom. I guess as I've thought about our discussions about that and maybe what's currently turning me away from church, it led me to the question of why do we have the Bible? What What is the Bible for? What are, what, how are we to use it and how can we use it rightly? And then maybe also, how do we know that's the right way to use it? Does that make sense, the, the question I'm asking there? I think it does. I think it's a it's a big one, but maybe we can yeah, like you say, focus in on maybe a test case in in this this Luke nine twenty three this idea of taking up your cross and following Jesus. Yeah. So when so when so I guess in, to kind of play that out a little bit more. So so Jesus is saying that to a group of people in the Christian tradition that I've grown up in. The Bible is this magic cookbook, and if it's in the Bible, it's <laughs> pretty much open season that. It needs to apply to your life. If it doesn't apply to your life, then you might be sinning. I mean, there are any number of different directions where it's taken. So in this case, we'd take that verse and say, well, Jesus said it to these people. So because Jesus said it to those people, Jesus is saying it to us today. We need to do it. I'm I'm not looking for a loophole or some way around like having to do what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. I'm just weary and cynical from I think all the bad uses of the Bible and so I guess I'm just kind of wanting to explore why do we have this thing how are we supposed to use what's the right way to use it yeah well I mean that's 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 important yeah maybe maybe I mean one of the things to kind of look at obviously this is these are questions about interpretation like how, how are we supposed to come to a text and it's particularly an ancient text. I mean, we have to, like you say, um, though often you often hear in church, you know, it's as though the kind of the Bible were were, were being often is presented as though the message or the text is being written right for you, right for the person sitting there, listening to whomever, the preacher or the pastor, or the minister, 
um, talk about that text. Yeah, and, a, and an example of that, I think I mentioned this before, was I was attending a church where the pastor was going through the book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And he kept talking about Isaiah. These were his exact words. Isaiah is saying to us that we need to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Isaiah was not, I mean, maybe Isaiah is talking to us and I'm open to that. But my understanding of Isaiah is Isaiah was talking to the Jews. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. thousands of years ago. He's not today. So to say that Isaiah is saying to us that we need to do whatever, to me, lacks a little bit of intellectual integrity. You're taking this thing in the Bible, and then you're saying, no, the Bible is talking to you, and you need to do this. Yeah, well put. That's that's a great description. It lacks intellectual integrity. Well, yeah, and I think this really comes down to what we call biblical hermeneutics, or the uh, approach, the interpretive approach we take to biblical texts. and so, on the one hand, I guess I would follow along with some thinkers who would talk about something called, a, well, maybe a divine discourse theory of the Bible. And what that essentially means is this idea that God talks through the Bible, God actually communicates through the Bible. And I think that, I mean, uh, as a Christian, uh, I believe in that, not simply because I am a Christian, but because it has been part of my experience as a Christian. But I think the, the reality, too, and something that this idea of divine discourse doesn't discount, um, but which it is very aware of, is that there's a, there are literary components to this text, this biblical text. And here, I'm, I, let's just think about not only just the New Testament, let's just think about the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These three gospels that are three accounts, really. They're trying to do pretty much the same thing. Um, we have to look at them as what they are. They're, 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 they're pieces of literature. They're, they're artistically created. Um, they're, they're not history in the sense that we think of history now. The requirements for anything that was historical back in the first century are different, and we have to respect that. We may not write history now, and in fact, if somebody tried now to write history, quote-unquote, the way that they're writing it at that time... We would look askance at that and say, oh, that's, that's very shoddy work. This isn't shoddy work, right? This is a totally different standard that has to be judged by its own standard. And, and the, the best way of understanding a text is to understand its, its genre, its, its basic nature. You know, what, what was the intention behind uh, the forming of the text in just this way, right? So what is it trying to communicate, but also through its very form? What does that form tell us about the intention of the text? And the form is, we might call it biography. This is, these are biographies about Jesus. Now, but they're not biographies in the sense that we like to think about them today, in that they're, I don't know, we might want to think about them being fairly, you know, fairly impartial. Biographers uh, don't want to necessarily claim neutrality, but they don't necessarily want to be trying to convince you of, of, of a very particular slant on things. That is not the case here. These are rhetorical documents in the ancient sense of the word. We often think of the word rhetoric as, as a bad word. Oh, that's just rhetoric. It means that that's just kind of junk thrown up in my face here to kind of confuse me. That, that's not what we meant in antiquity. In antiquity, a rhetorical document is a document structured with an argument, uh, maybe not overt. So in this case, 
you're seeing a lot of stories put together. And you can see that they're stories because the way that if you, if you, if you try to lay out step for step what Jesus is doing, where Jesus is going, what's happening with Jesus, the three Gospels don't line up. And often some people will uh, fairly, unfortunately, naively take that to be a problem. That's not a problem because these documents are rhetorical documents. They're designed to convince you of something. And their standard of historiography, of history writing, is different from ours. They are not trying to do what we would think of as uh, present an eyewitness account in a court, court of law. That's not what's going on here. They are, they are taking uh, incidents, situations from the life of Jesus. They will line them up in different ways. And in fact, even in this passage we talked about, Luke 9.23 has two other occurrences, two other exact occurrences in the New Testament. One is Mark 8.34, the other is Matthew 16.24. And Luke doesn't exactly line up with the other two. Uh, the other two are both introduced with, with two events. One is G uh, Peter identifying who Jesus is. And so um, in, the, in the one in Mark, Mark 8.34, a few verses above that in 29, Jesus said, But he asked them, the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. Same thing happens in Matthew. Uh, in Luke, um, that also happens. But there's another thing that happens. Right before this whole part about taking up your cross and you know deny yourself, take up your cross, there's another thing that goes on with Peter. So Peter's involved twice in these two earlier sections in Mark and Matthew. So again, coming back to Mark, in verse 32, And Peter took him, Jesus, aside and rebuked him. And, but Jesus turned and looked at his disciple, and he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter had basically said, You know, you're not going to go die. Uh, you're not going to be tortured and suffer. And, and this is actually a fairly important point, because it goes back to some earlier discussions we had about the, the political aspirations of the people relative to Jesus, that they wanted him to overthrow the Roman rule. They wanted him to be a king and to take, basically, restore to Israel its dignity and its place and get rid of the Roman overlords. And um, Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not the plan. I, I am a king, uh, but much more than you can think and much more than even the political agenda would have me, would make it up that I am. And that is interesting, that, that part about Peter is it in Luke? Now that's maybe a, a small detail, uh, but I think it's actually a quite quite a significant one because um, it's it's a very uh, that whole tension between Jesus saying, "I am the King of the Jews" or "I am the Son of God" more 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 appropriately, and the people saying, "Okay, you're you're really special. You're doing a lot of important things. Therefore, this is this is kind of this is how we see you." And Jesus saying, you know, you've got some of that right, but you know what? That's the picture's far too small. My picture's far grander than that. So I guess what I would say really about, you know, just even thinking about the synoptic gospels is that they're ancient biography. They're rhetorical in the sense that they are clearly and overtly trying to convince readers that Jesus Christ is the Son of that Jesus is the Christ, so Jesus is the Messiah. And that as the Messiah Jesus is also the Son of God. That's sort of a, the bedrock direction and intention of the documents. What strikes me immediately right there is 
and it kind of gave me the shivers as you just kind of said that that you know okay these documents are to convince us of who Jesus is which which is slight which is different than how we're seeing it used in this book the book is mm-hmm. using those verses to say this is all the stuff you need to do and you need mm-hmm. to do it and if you're not doing it enough or it doesn't hurt enough then you might not be following God, because, you know, in this passage, Jesus says you have to deny yourself. So are you denying yourself? Are you denying yourself enough? Are you denying yourself in the right ways? Are you sure mm-hmm. you denied yourself? Like, it's this whole, <laughs> I don't know. Can, can that notion be taken from the passage? Should it be taken from the passage? Like, where, how many different, maybe my question is, how many different dimensions do you think there are to, well, I guess it would depend on the passage, but how many different dimensions do you think that there are here? Well, I mean, you see, even, even, right, we, we've only, <laughs> there's this idea of taking up your cross and denying yourself, right? That's the idea we're looking at, and we've looked at it in three different places across the three Gospels, three, uh, across the three synoptic Gospels. But there are two other places where that, where that same notion occurs, but it's in a different context, right? Interesting. So if, yeah, if you go ahead to Luke fourteen twenty seven, and this is this was you see he brought this up before, right? The um, the author Kyle Eidelman, the author of Not a Fan, brought up these passages, and they're in the context. Uh, if you go to the Luke one Luke fourteen twenty seven, it says, "Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." So it sounds sounds like we're talking the same general idea, and we are, but the context is very different. Right, because right before that, he's talking about this idea of family and belonging. And he says in 1426, the preceding verse, whoever comes to me and does not hate, and I'm reading from the NRSV, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. So there's this very, very, almost harsher message in Luke 14, uh, 26. And it, but then if you, it's, it's interesting too, because if we go back to the other one in Matthew, it's Matthew 10, uh, 38, very similar, but there's an interesting twist here. I'll read the first of all, just 10, 38. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So same kind of kernel there. This kernel is prefixed with something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to go back a few further, a few verses further into uh, chapter 10, 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And here he quotes, and you can tell it's a quotation by the way that it's indented. For I have not come to set man a man against his... I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then, and then the, the 1038, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So, what I see happening here, this, this one in Matthew is quite helpful because there's a quotation. The quotation comes out of Micah. He's quoting from Micah 7, 6. And what's going on in Micah is the, the, the author, uh, the prophet, is lamenting the fact that, that, that those who are faithful to God are, are no longer present. The faithful have disappeared, they've gone. 
These people are no longer faithful. The Israelites have abandoned God. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw this around. I know we're kind of going in a bit of a... This is a bit of a big arc here, but the arc will come back. So at the beginning... Uh, I'll just read Micah 7. I'm going to read from verse 2. The faithful have disappeared from the land, and there is no one left who is upright. That's the context in which this text is being taken from. If we skip down a little bit, I'm just going to go down a few. Well, no, I can just read it. Um, the faithful have disappeared from the land, and there is no one left who is upright. They all lie and wait for blood, and they hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled to do evil. The official and the judge are a bro- the official and the judge ask for a bribe, and the powerful dictate what they desire. Thus they pervert justice. I mean, this is a pretty bad situation. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The days of their sentinels, of their punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a friend. Have no confidence in a loved one. Guard the doors of your mouth for her who lies in your embrace. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against the mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies are members of your own household. So you can see there how they have taken that as a section. It's not a, it's not a completely direct quotation. It might have come from the Septuagint, which is a slightly different translation. But you can see that they're, they're coming right out of that. The idea is that the people who are supposed to be God's people have turned their back on God. And if we put that back into the context of what it means to follow God. God is saying, and, and this, is, this is very strong in Luke, particularly, interesting, very strong in Luke, that, that the family unit is, in first century Palestine, and in the first century world in general, the family unit is core. Your identity, who you are, and what you can do, what your future is, uh, the possibilities that are open to you, how we understand you, everything, everything is tied to family. Everything. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying here, is he, he, he is just, he is reversing things on a huge scale. And we have to, like in, in Luke, he's, he, he's very clear about this. Other parts as well, but uh, if you go to Luke, and we talked about this earlier, a couple podcasts ago, Luke 8, 19 to 21, and and, and this is this, this is kind of moment when Jesus is doing Jesus' thing, he's teaching, and, and his family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters want to come and see him, talk to him. So, again, from the NRSV, verse 19, chapter 8 of Luke. Then his mother and his brothers came to him with the crowd, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, wanting to see you. But he said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And there is, this is a huge, huge radicalization and transformation of the notion of family, which is the notion of belonging and identity. And Jesus is reworking identity, and he's doing exactly, exactly the same thing in these other situations. When Peter comes to him, and, and he says, you know, who are you? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Peter you know, in, in two of these other three situations in the Synoptic Gospels that we talked about, Peter is, you know, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die, etc. And Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to do that because there's a political agenda here and you're going to fulfill that. And, and Jesus, th- that is so threatening, that is so much a threat to the, the true kind of orientation of Jesus in 
bringing about the kingdom of God, that Jesus literally says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. No, that, that's a, that's a powerful, a powerful rebuke. It's, it's maybe, maybe more powerful than the things he said to the, the Pharisees. Right? So, there's a huge reorientation in the two, um, that I read, Matthew 10.38 and Luke 14.27, when it's about, you know, if you cannot love me more than you love your father and mother, or, you know, almost in Luke, I think it says, that if you don't hate them relative to me. Here he's talking about, there is a new, I, I have instituted a, a, a new family, a new order, a new way of, of identity. And this is, this is what you are to, what you are bound to. And, and, and again, he's bringing out the same things when he says, when Peter says, here's who you are. Yeah, you've got it. You've got it. You are, you have, you have understood what that identity is. You've understood who I am. And that identity applies to you. And then when Peter, in, in two of the other three situations, tries to kind of prioritize the political, the social political situation of, no, 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 we, we want you to be king and get rid of the Romans. Like, come on. You know what you've got to do. And, and Jesus has a far vaster picture. He says, no, 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 that is not what you belong to anymore. You are not part of, you're not Peter as, as a, you know, and he changed Peter's name. Right? And that changing of name, the renaming, the true naming, is part of what that is. Again, to be reoriented within the kingdom of God as God's child. You are first and foremost God's child. You are being put into a new way of, of viewing the world as a new way of viewing yourself relative to God. And that, for me, is what's going on when Jesus is talking about, you know, if you don't take up your cross and follow me. It's, it's, it's a question of belonging and a question of identity, which is uh, not some sort of a punishment or do this or else or anything like that. It's, it's an entire way of seeing the world predicated on the fact that Jesus has brought a change that is far greater than the social, than the political, and that this whole notion of belonging, like if you go back into, into Micah and you think about what's, what, what Micah is saying there, these things apply to us, right? <laughs> so, so wait, are you saying then that the traditional notion of the need to deny ourselves, that, that that's not what this passage is about? That it's, that it's more about... I think it's about embracing... Denying family and that whole... Idea? I think it's about embracing an identity that 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 goes in that cuts in two directions. On the one hand, it comes right back to Micah, and it says, "Look at look at all this stuff that's that's happening. Look at the the corruption, the foulness, the wrongness, even at the heart of one's own family." And it's on the one hand realizing that that's there, realizing that that you know we seek identity, we seek fulfillment. And we seek to know who we are in our future and what we can be. In some senses, through some of these things. In the first century, it was certainly family. You know, now there are more possibilities that are open to us. It's a little bit different. But it's still the same thing. God is saying, no matter, Jesus, like that, that this kind of text is telling us and, and is kind of trying to grab us and say, no matter where you look, no matter where you go, you will not find fulfillment or your true identity outside of me. You will find that in parts and pieces, but those parts and pieces 
are wonderfully interwoven and made into this remarkable tapestry that comes about by embracing God as Father and by embracing the ultimacy of the kingdom of God above all other things. That's what I'm taking out of this. That's what I get out of this. And that's what I think when you look at all these passages and you bring them together, and you take them in their context, and you don't just take one and try to make something of it, but you try to take it all. I think that's where it's taking us. Okay. So let me take us in maybe... No, 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 no I'm... Okay. So let me take us in quite a, kind of a different direction. This is based on a conversation I had earlier this week with someone that I really, really respect. Mm-hmm. And I... I and I don't want to misrepresent their position. So if they happen to listen to this someday, hopefully they'll give me some room if I've, I've uh, mischaracterized this. One of their concerns to, I guess, maybe the hermeneutical approach is that it can get so boiled down and so scientific and so, um, I don't know, are you potentially like taking the life out of this, this message from God? Or um, I don't know that I'm saying that very well. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the other the other part of our conversation was, without getting too carried away with context and all that. I mean, they were raising the point, and I thought it was a valid point. They said, you know, isn't there something to this notion of denying ourselves? I mean, isn't isn't that a good principle? I mean, in in a in a marriage or a very close relationship, we have to deny ourselves. And, you know, ultimately that helps the relationship grow and, and you want to do that. And, and that is a good thing. And so that's a good message to be taking from this passage. And, and then I, but I, then I kind of argued back that, well, okay, if that's a good, if that concept is true, Mm But that's not what the passage was really about. Is that intellectually honest? And and we were I was using some examples of, of some sermons that I've heard at church and, mm. and it was kind of the same idea. I said, you know, my, my frustration that kind of fuels my cynicism is when I read and hear stuff where I feel like someone has taken a passage and pushed it in a direction that it wasn't mm-hmm. intended to be I consider that intellectual dishonesty. Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like that, yeah, something about that doesn't feel right to me. Now, their position was, well, if ultimately a passage of Scripture can help launch us in the direction of something that's true or that's a good principle, that's maybe, you know, maybe not such a bad thing. Mm-hmm. To which I do, I maybe I need to understand their position a little bit more, but that just for some reason it makes me uncomfortable. I'm kind of curious, what, what, what do you make of all that? Yeah, well, there's, there's, a, there's a good bit of stuff in there. Why don't I start at the end and work towards okay. the beginning? Um, I guess on the, very, on the idea that a passage of Scripture can be taken out of context and still take us towards something good, on what basis are you defining what good is? Because it feels good or because you it sounds good? And if it sounds good... What does that mean? It's resonating with something else, and if it's resonating with something else and it has to do with God, then what exactly is it resonating with? 
Is it resonating with another passage of Scripture? Yeah, well, I would well, think... Well, why not use that passage of Scripture then? If you can take it in context and get to that good place, take it in context and get to the good place. I guess I, I would be confused by that. And, and my confusion is not because I don't think that my experience of God is valid. I think my experience of God is extraordinarily valid. But I know that most evangelicals are very, very leery of anything to do with feelings or experience. And so if they're telling me, if I'm hearing from an evangelical Christian, from, from 90% of evangelical Christians that I know of, that, uh, you know, this passage is taking me good places. I, this is a really good message. And I say to them, you know, I think you're, you're contorting that passage to make it do something that it, to say something that it's really not saying. If they want to say back to me, well, you know, this, this feels like something really good, and I, I guess I would have a conversation with them about the role of experience relative to their faith. Because for most people, they're really doubtful on that. And if they're doubtful on that leg, and yet they're standing on it, I'm really suspicious. Like, really? Like, well, I, don't, I don't get it. On the one hand, you want to undercut, you know, experience, and yet here you are standing on experience, and uh, kind of using that to, to kind of like... Um, Ride a little bit roughshod over this passage. When we're looking at a text and we're trying to take good things out of that text, you know, maybe what we're doing is we're saying, you know, I, uh, I want to read that it's a good idea to deny myself from Luke 9.23 because that works for me in exercise. Is that a valid principle? Yes, it's valid. But honestly, John, in my experience with evangelicals, that type of relationship where I can take something, an example from real life, and use it to validate a passage of scripture is almost never accepted. It almost always goes the other way. What do you mean? To say I'm not sure I'm following you there. What I'm talking about is the difference between reading the Bible in light of real life or reading the Bible in light of the world or reading the world in light of the Bible. And what I see evangelicals typically doing is the latter. We find a principle in scripture that we understand and we apply it to real life. And that's how it's supposed to work. We don't do it the other way around. Because that's that we risk contorting scripture. So a classic example of that is this whole thing to do with evolutionism versus creationism. The Bible says the world is created in seven days. That's the way it is. It doesn't matter what the scientific evidence tells us. We can totally disregard that. Now, of course, I'm being facetious. They've taken a particular hermeneutic. They've taken a particular way of approaching the relationship between the Bible and the world, the Bible and human existence. And as long as they, they enshrine that and they canonize that as something, not even, it's basically God's will, which is bunk. It's not God's will at all. But they, they see it that way, and so they refuse to read it the other way. And so it's very really interesting to me, because what you're saying, the only way that I can understand reading Luke 9.23 as, hey, you know, I know the passage isn't saying this, but this is something that's really good. You know, sometimes it's good to deny yourself is if you do exactly what most Christians are pretty uh, apprehensive about doing, which is saying, here's how I read real life, and I'm going to read the Bible in light of that. Because, of course, the big problem with that is you get a lot of people who aren't Christians, and they have experiences of real life, and they read real life, and then they come to the Bible, and they say, well, I'm going to read the Bible in this way, and then Christians, then, then, then Christians want to stand back and say, whoa, 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 <laughs> hey, man, you are totally out of bounds here. Do you not know how it's supposed to work? So, honestly, with, with no disrespect to whomever it is that you were speaking to, the risk is strong. I don't know if this person was going that way. I don't, I'm not going to accuse that person of this, but the risk is very strong. My experience with evangelicals is that they are highly, um, as soon as anything strays into that sort of 
direction of, oh, you're just reading the Bible from the way you want to read it, not from the way you should read it. Then, then you know, everything is uh, very militant, and there's there's very little flexibility. Well, and that's why I gave some of my disclaimers at the beginning, uh, which is I'm sure there's someone listening to this that will say the whole reason that I'm even raising this question about this passage is because I don't want to follow it. I guess I'm willing to say that's maybe a, a subconscious possibility, but it's not my but how can you primary. You? It's not my primary motivation for saying, "Greg, you've got to help me find a loophole in this passage." I just don't want to follow it. But I don't think we're talking about that yet, though. How can you talk about following something if you don't understand it, or if you're, if you're potentially misinterpreting it? Are you following something if you're misinterpreting it? I don't think so. I think you're, you know, whether you're... Well, doing... you're following your misinterpretation. <laughs> yeah. But but is, is, it, is it about interpreting the Bible, or is it about truth? And in Christianity, of course, we want, we locate both of those within God. God is the source of the biblical text as the one who inspired the authors. And God in Jesus, Jesus talks about, you know, I am the truth, the way, and the light. God, God is the author, the origin, and the source of all truth. So, you know, we're, we're cool as long as we can, we're good, we're in the right position, as long as we can hold those two things together. But when we start to deviate from that, this is where we fail to listen, particularly to the message of the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets say, you have the Bible, and you do not have truth, because you've taken these things. This is exactly the message from Micah. This is exactly Micah 7, 2 to whatever I read, 9, right? It's all about, you've, you've, you've distorted, you've contorted, you have abused all of this. You have the, the, the scriptures, and no one questions that these aren't the correct scriptures, but the way you're using them, you're, you're, you're doing worse than many of the nations around you who have no idea what the scriptures are. And you call yourselves Israelites. This is blasphemy. This is terrible. And of course, the message, that message, of course, applies to us. You know, you call yourself Christians. You say you're following Christ, and what are you doing? Well, and going back to your, your example of uh, creationism versus evolution is that is that a situation of value of um, not value but placing one higher than the other so you're placing the bible above experience or science exactly kind of in the way that you draw the parallels between love and truth and and often placing truth above love exactly yeah i think i think you know the real world is an informer I mean, it's a, it's an informer in the most positive sense. It informs us about the truth. It gives us a sense of truth, but it gives us also a sense of, of love. I mean, the psalmist is very clear and, uh, in, in saying, you know, taste and see that God is good. In other words, the created reality is there to, as a space for us to be in relationship with God as, uh, the medium within which to renew, foster, encourage, and strengthen relationship with God. That's what it's there for. It's there as the place where you taste and where you see God's goodness. Now, the whole idea that somebody might say, hey, there's nothing there to see, nothing there to taste. Uh, fine. You know, that's, that's a different, further conversation, and it's, import it's an important one. But, but I would definitely want to be very quick with any Christians who would take this unidimensional um, view of reading the Bible, reading the world in light of the Bible, always prioritizing the Bible over our experience, our understanding through live, you know, through our through our lives, uh, through uh, 
science, etc., always prioritizing the Bible over those things, I think that's a very dangerous and wrong way to be. And I think I think the Bible itself contradicts that. So instead you would argue that they that to seek to reconcile them all on the same level? Uh, no, I think I would I would offer different I, I would I would want to keep them uh in, in tension with each other, and I think tensions, oftentimes we think of tensions as bad things. I think tensions can be productive. And by tension, I mean that there is a flexible relationship where sometimes one will, you know, take the upper hand over the other, and vice versa. So in terms of the, the scientific position, um, you know, what I see a lot of Christians do uh, who are very dedicated to this idea of, of uh, young earth is they say okay it, it, it happens both ways and it's 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 sad um they'll say okay well we know from the bible that the world can't be any older than x number of years so so how are we to explain how are we to explain um the 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 dating through you know cosmology geology etc and this is exactly the same thing as when you get a theologian like rudolf bultmann and the father, or if not the father, then a main figure in what we call theological modernism. Theological modernism is essentially reading theology through the lens of the world. It's saying, hey, you know, we know there are no such things as miracles. So what really happened? <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. How is that any different? That's really interesting. That's exactly the same thing. And on the one hand, evangelicals want to just... uh you know, they really want to smack down Yeah, because they would say, well, obviously, miracles happen. It's in the Bible, so there, yeah, what's, yeah. there must be other explanations then. Yeah, yeah. They're saying, listen, your starting points are, you are making a claim in your starting point that you do not have the knowledge to claim. You are, you are, you are extending yourself beyond your knowledge to make a claim that is a faith stain claim. And we counter that. And, and rightly so. I, I would agree with evangelicals who would say, you know, we counter that. And not because even miracles had to happen, but anyone who says, listen, this couldn't possibly have happened, how do you know that? Prove to me that. Show me that. You don't know that. You didn't see them. Does that mean they didn't happen? I didn't see the Holocaust. Does that mean the Holocaust didn't happen? You know, and, and as soon as you start moving into that ground, it's like, whoa, you got to back off of that one. Well, it's the same thing with science. Same thing with, you know, the beginning of... Uh, uh, the origins of, 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 you know, human existence and, and realizing, you know, this is a text. Did, did the author of Genesis, did, did God sort of give this author, uh, was the intention of Genesis to write down exactly what happened at the beginning or is this the founding narrative of the people of Israel? It's a retrospective founding narrative of the people of Israel. That's what, that's how we see this. Now, there are, there are a few problems. I'm thinking particularly of Paul's use of Adam in Romans 5. That is a, that is a problem for a, um, from, on most views, that's a problem for uh, uh, an, an evolutionist, uh, a theistically evolutionist perspective of human origins. However, <laughs> there are many less problems, to my mind. You know, I'm not committed to, the, to evolution. I couldn't care less. I'm committed to truth. And I think that's where we need to be. You know, I'm not committed to, to reading Romans, Luke 9, 23, one way or the other way. I'm, I'm committed 
to the truth. As far as I can see it and understand it, I'm quite willing to change my view. I don't have to be right, right? But I, I do have to, as much as I can, let the right prevail. And I think if people are doing that in a general sense, if Christians are doing that, they, number one, they're much closer to God. Because God is truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Uh, number two, they're much more credible. They're credible within their own communities. They're also credible outside of their communities. They're credible to people. You know, I live in a town where we have the major paleontological museum in Canada and one of the foremost paleontological museums in the world. It is phenomenal. And I had a friend here at the church, this church that I was at one time associated with, and he said to me, you know, those people up there at the museum, they think we're idiots and we're morons. And they won't talk with us. They won't engage with us. And I didn't say this to his face. He's a friend of mine. But the thought that came to me was, you know, if the way that we are acting is to completely prima facie, like right off the bat, say, hey, we, we know the earth can't be this old because the Bible tells us otherwise. So how... How are we figuring this out? You know, and in most, for most of these people, uh, I have to say, sadly, their response is, well, these scientists are liars. No. <laughs> they may not know that they're liars. They may not be trying to lie, no, that's that they're what lying. I, well, and I haven't studied any of this stuff, and I don't, I really don't have any interest in, in learning more, that much more about it. But yeah, the, all, what I've <laughs> always heard from the creationists is, oh, the carbon dating is, that's just bogus, and, um, you know, all these other ways of measuring the Earth's age are just totally not backed by science and blah, blah, blah. Well, my my response to this fellow uh, really was, and I didn't say it to him, but, but in, my, in my head I'm thinking to myself, maybe they think we're morons because we are. Because we have so staunchly, like Rudolf Bultmann, we have, we have said, you know, this is the way the world is. There are no miracles, and therefore, how do we understand these passages about miracles? We've done exactly the same thing. Well, and I think it points thing. out the difficulty of having a, a conversation where you're trying to get to the same place if you don't... Well, if you're not starting from some of the same assumptions or same starting points, it's, some, it's often hard to get to mm. a conclusion you can both agree on, too. Well... You're pushing oh, really? my hot button here, John. <laughs> I had no idea. Really? You're totally pushing okay. my hot button. Well, because I don't. I guess I would. I would both agree and disagree. But I guess what 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 are those starting points? And and the starting points that I have with the person who's over there, who's a staunch Christian, and and is fairly uh, closed about the idea of anything other than a creationist perspective, and the person over there at the museum. A paleontology who is, uh, you know, a naturalist and is very closed about the idea of divine intervention in human existence is that I am concerned about truth. Yeah, but either neither of those, but neither those of those two people, people can really have a good conversation, can they? I think they can if they understand what it is they're actually they're actually committed to. And the last kind of number of, I'm uh, just put out the third one on, um, you know, um, the religious significance of atheism. Uh, the third blog post that I put out, and and I think what's happening here is that Christians, you know, these two groups here, here I'm standing in the middle, right? I'm a Christian, but I'm also a, an evolutionist. Um, but these two groups on either side of me here 
All they do is they look at the other people's conclusions. And they say, you know, we can't get along. We, we, just, we just conclude different things. Well, maybe you do conclude different things. Maybe you're quite right about that. But, but that's not all you've got. Right? You've got a whole orientation. So, in other words, when I look at somebody like Bertrand Russell and he says, you know, the, the, the main things about life are living, living nice life informed by knowledge and, and uh, directed towards love. Uh, we could talk all day about that. Oh, we're totally on the same page. I'm, I'm completely on the same page. Knowledge and love, or truth and love, absolutely. Now, the fact that Bertrand Russell is a staunch atheist, and I'm a staunch Christian, does not preclude the fact that that discussion could be very, very vibrant, because we are both very passionate about it. And if we focus on some of these things and open ourselves to dialogue, and particularly if we... You see, I think Christians think that, that if they don't... They've got to they've defend God. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that God's a bit bigger than me and, and, and doesn't really need my defending. <laughs> that reminds me of one of my favorite lines from a recent U2 song, Stop Helping God Across the Street Like a Little Old Lady. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, you know, and we screw things up. Christians classically and, and, and brilliantly screw things up when they, when they try overly to defend God. It just does not work. And so what I would want to do is say, you know, at the back... You know, when it comes to where I stand, I can hold a critical disposition relative to your conclusions over here about, uh, you know, naturalism to the person at the museum and to your conclusions over here about creationism to the Christian sitting over there. But you know what? I can dialogue with you because I can listen to you both. I hear that truth is important to both of you. I hear that love is important to both of you. I hear that living in the real world and understanding the real world is important to both of you. We can have a conversation here. I think what's happened is there certainly is um, we the church is is egregiously terribly lacking in exemplars in people who can be uh, skilled examples to us of what it is to productively to dialogue and interact with our neighbors and you know really part of loving your neighbor as yourself is being able to listen to that person to talk with that person, to interact with that person, and not having to either shut them down or shut them off. If we are working with a model of dispute that says we have to protect God's truth at all costs, then you know what? Who, who are, you? are you? Are you the Holy Spirit? Are you somebody that, are you some, some angelic individual that's been sent out to do these things? No, no, no. You're, you're a follower of Christ, and you're supposed to be loving your neighbors as yourself and loving God. Those are your first two priorities. And if you're not meeting those two priorities, I don't care which ones you're meeting, you're screwing up. <laughs> Craig lays down the smack. <laughs> hey, pick a, pick a, I mean, uh, if somebody wants to tell me that my exegesis is wrong and say, you know, that, those really aren't the top two priorities, Craig, then, then pick up the Bible and tell me. Right, I'll, right, Open right. it up and show me. I'll, I'll happily change my view. Yeah. But I think, you know. Have a discussion. Why not? All right, one more thing that's that's lingering out there for mm. me that I'm wondering if you can... It, it's kind of in a different direction, but sort of on the same topic. What would your approach be to, like, the book of Jeremiah? Or not Jeremiah, Isaiah. So I'm thinking back again to this series of, uh. of sermons where it was all the things that Isaiah was saying, quote, to us today, and so... You know, Israel was doing this, and these are the consequences, and these are the warnings. And so today, Isaiah is saying to us that we need to be aware of the same things. Like, what would your—why do we have Isaiah? What mm. is—what 
what are we meant to do with it? How how should it inform right. our lives? Could we read it and it and it give us prompt us and thinks, wow, there's some parallels to what Israel was doing to today, and I can take something from that. Yes, excellent. I I don't have a problem with that. I think it's probably, in other words, I think that there's totally room for reading the Bible and and for God to put things in our heads as we're reading the Bible. Um, I've gone mm-hmm. too many different places there. So back to my original question. What what's Isaiah for? What are we supposed to be using it for? Why do we have it? Well, you, I, I when I read these texts, you know, sometimes sometimes I feel like they're speaking to me. There can be moments, incisive moments, where there's a connection between what the situation in a given passage, chapter, or book, and a situation in my life. I, and I, I think that's valid, and I think that, that that's a work of, if you like, translation that the Holy Spirit takes on. But I think that that can only come as a secondary thing after we have done the work of literary interpretation that is required in light of, A, this being an ancient document, B, written by an ancient person, obviously, C, written to an ancient audience that ain't me, <laughs> right, with their own literary historical context. Once I have taken all that into, uh, into uh, consideration, then I can, I've got a chance. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a biblical scholar. That's, that's not my, my deal. My deal is, is, is hermeneutics, right? Is the theory of interpretation, which can give me some insight into how to go about doing this, but I still don't have the language. You know, I don't have any Hebrew I've got, and my Greek is just barely there. But I think, it's the same. You know, I, I could, I could take a passage and say, oh, gee, this is really speaking to me about X, Y, and Z, but, the passage may be about A, B, and C, you know? And is it a good thing that I, I hear something about X, Y, and Z? It, it, it may be. But I don't think that's the intention of the and passage. Would you say, and would you say that it's, that that it's the, not helpful to, to then make it a proclamation from God? In other words, do you agree with my assertion that it's really not fair to say, Isaiah is saying this to us today? Well, let me say it this way. If the passage, if I'm seeing X, Y, and Z in the passage, and it's about A, B, and C, and if it's good for me to understand, you know, the X, Y, and Z part regardless, that's a gracious, that's a gracious act of translation okay. on the part of the Holy Spirit. That is not something that I want to go out there and start promoting as a way of reading that passage because it's a wrong reading. Don't do it. You know, if you want to go out and promote, hey, God, help me with these things in my life, great! But don't put it back to a passage that you have either misinterpreted, lightly interpreted, or just kind of, you know, proof text to get some good reason for I love doing that it. Say, no, I love that you say that, because in the conversation I was having with this person, that was exactly what I said. I said, I don't have any problem if someone wants to tell a story from their life or how they read a passage and how they formed a conclusion mm. and how it helped them to live in a more upstanding way. I am totally cool with that. But don't take that passage and tell me that God is telling me or us that we need to do something when exactly like you're saying, it doesn't say that. Or that wasn't, yeah, yeah, okay. No. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a key part. So I guess to your initial question, you said, you know, what is Isaiah? That notion of somebody saying, Isaiah is saying this to us today. I would be leery about that. You know, I do think that there are certain 
I would put it in the form of takeaways. You know, what's a takeaway we can have from this? A very clear takeaway from Isaiah is this idea that your best religion is not but, but foulness, dirty rags in front of God. Which is this idea that you may have the text, you may understand the text, but what you are living is so far from what that text is, 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 is orienting to you towards that, that this is awful. It's terrible. You know, and so Isaiah gives us, and Isaiah does want us to take away, I think, I think the, the, the point of the book is, is this notion of false religion. It is, it is religion in word and name alone. It is not a true orientation towards God that where we meet God, where we are in right relationship with God, there is a falseness and a, a hypocrisy at the deepest level that is the concern of the author of Isaiah. And that concern exists today, too. God is no less concerned now with us than God was then with them about this issue. Now, it wasn't written to us, but it applies to us. So I would put it in the form of takeaways. You know, what can I take away? And does the takeaway mean that, oh, you know, take it away or don't take it away? Like, I don't want to eat at that restaurant, I'll go read that. No, 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 screw that. You know, you, you don't want to read the book? that's not an option right i mean it is an option you can pick and choose as you like but but then you're 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 getting into very dangerous ground right you start forming what we say call a canon within a canon this the all these books in the bible are are in the bible but really the ones that matter for me (laughs) no they all matter for you they all matter for me right well the spooky music means only one thing This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so leave a comment at our website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 39. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey. Untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons License. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.